So what do you think? Are we living in a populist moment, one that will quickly pass in the wake of the economic recession of just over a decade ago, which disrupted waning trust that previously existed between government and the individual citizen? Or is the current phenomenon, Americans typically think of President Trump's election in the United States and the Brexit debate in the UK, considerably deeper than that, and either here to stay or something considerably more structural permanent? Our guest on today's podcast is Matthew Goodwin, a professor of politics in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent in the UK. Matthew argues that national populism, which he and a colleague write about in an October 2018 best-selling book, National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy, isn't just a fad or a moment, but an historically rooted phenomenon with dynamics that are here to stay. National populism, he says, runs deeper than racism or anti-immigration or country versus city, though these are all threads that they develop. Instead, Matthew thinks of the wave of national populist elections being felt around the world, Trump in 2016 and the current fight over Brexit, but also Orban's election in Hungary, Kaczynski in Poland, Salvini in Italy, Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, and Marine Le Pen's surprising candidacy in France, and others whose elections have recently taken journalists and pundits by surprise. He says they come from a much deeper well. Goodwin argues there are populist currents at work beneath the surface, and in country after country, he describes a sense of loss trying to be recovered, even if dislocated, disconnected voters don't always put everything into words. He talks about the four Ds, distrust, fear of destruction, a deep sense of deprivation, and de-alignment, all at work in modern political life across Europe and America. Matthew's joined today by Henry Olson, a daily columnist at the Washington Post, and a longtime political scholar, author, and commentator on American politics. This is a truly interesting conversation about a different angle of a big problem many of us are trying to understand. So let's jump straight to it. So, Matthew, I've been a fan of yours for years, although we've actually never met. Going back to when you co-authored Revolt on the Right, you seemed to be somebody who understood what was going on with the concerns about immigration and globalization and international institutions and their impact on national life. And now you've written a book, National Populism, that expands your analysis well beyond the United Kingdom and into the global phenomena we're all wrestling with. Can you Tell our listeners what national populism is and what are the two or three or maybe even four main factors that are driving it. Well, firstly, just to say thanks for having me along to share some of the research. I think the the way that I would define national populism is to really say, firstly, that when you look at a lot of the movements that are lumped into that camp, a lot of those movements often have important differences and different histories. I can't understand Brexit, for example, without understanding the history of British Euroscepticism in the same way that I cannot possibly understand Donald Trump without understanding America's long and established tradition of populism. And we can't understand Lega and Matteo Salvini in Italy without understanding Northern separatism in Italian politics. But I think it's fair to say that there are some common core defining features and 
we would argue that national populism is a movement that foremost wants to prioritize the interests and the culture of the nation and the national group against what it argues are corrupt, self-serving or neglectful elites. And within that, I think it's important to say that national populism, at least in my mind, is is very much a, an ism. It is an ideology, albeit a thin ideology. It's, it doesn't have the thick, detailed worldview that, say, Marxism does or, or fascism does. But it does have some core ideological anchors. And that's important because I think much of our public discussion about national populism views it still as a style. We focus overwhelmingly on Donald Trump's rallies, on his Twitter feed. We focus on Nigel Farage's symbolic cultural references, drinking a pint in the pub and the speeches of leaders. And actually, I think that's fundamentally where we've gone wrong, because if we view national populism as a as a thin ideology in its own right, then we have to accept that it does have a relatively coherent body of thought. And we have to accept that actually it's got a, a pretty long and ingrained tradition within our democratic systems. And I think that is why it's got this durability that has confounded many people that still, I think, we have a, a tendency to slip into viewing national populism as, as some people saw it in the 1990s, which is primarily as a protest movement, not as something that is much more sticky, if you like, something that is is rooted in, in specific currents. And those those currents or drivers, I would argue, certainly if you take 30 years of social science and, and you take it seriously, as we do in the book, those drivers are deeper and stronger than many assumed, that you have essentially four key concerns that we're going to have to wrestle with if we want to get if we want to deal with national populism. And I think it's important to accept that we're never going to get rid of national populism. The best we can do is, is, is learn to live with it and manage its, its darker effects. But the first relates to relative deprivation, the sense that my group is losing out relative to others, whether the more prosperous middle class or immigrants uh, and ethnic minorities. The second key driver is concern over the perceived destruction of ways of life, national values and identity, that migration is as much about a desire for cultural protection as it is a desire for economic equality. Third, we also point to high levels of distrust in political systems and not irrational distrust, but actually a a view rooted especially among working class voters and non-graduates that political systems have over time become less representative of those key groups. And as a consequence, our political systems have really succumbed to what other political scientists would call the exclusion gap, pushing working class voters and non-graduates out of the policymaking process because largely they're not represented in the corridors of power to the same extent as other groups. And so the distrust that we see across large numbers of advanced democracies is actually rooted in a legitimate grievance that we can come back to. And lastly, even if you disagree with any with all of that, I think the one thing that no social scientist could really deny is the fact that our liberal democracies, which are still incredibly young, barely 100 years old in most cases, that the relationship between the traditional political parties that were formed and came of age in the early 20th century or late 19th century, the relationship between those parties and voters is now breaking down to such an extent that it's becoming much easier for challenger parties of all colours and shades to break through into our political system. So we're now living in 
an era of de-alignment where voter loyalties and established habitual patterns of voting are being disrupted. So if you're five star in Italy, if you're Macron in France, if you're Nigel Farage in the Brexit party, it's much easier for you to break through because we've got these much higher rates of volatility. So if you put all of that together, we argue that, number one, national populism isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It's an established, most likely permanent feature on the political landscape. Secondly, the drivers are deeper and stronger than people assume. And thirdly, I think we will need to step back from the day-to-day debates and really take this evidence that we've got in social science much more seriously and accept that we can't get rid of these movements, but we perhaps can learn to live with them and come up with some more creative responses. Matthew, I appreciated very much in reading the book your description of currents and sort of the heft and the depth of this movement that lies beneath the surface. Sometimes people have talked similarly about religion in that regard, the history, the rootedness. And I wonder if you might comment on that as a political scientist, as someone who's teaching politics. What is this tool of thinking about sort of currents? How does that apply to to this phenomenon? And also, it's been a year since you published the book with Roger. Do you have any other sort of meta-level observations at this point? Is it, is, are you finding that the argument is frankly more strong and more in demand or less so, I suspect, the former? And could you tell us about that piece? Well, on the currents, the argument essentially here is that I'm often asked this question, for example, particularly by people outside of academia, that when you look at all of these disruptive populist movements, Trump in the US, Brexit in the UK, the AFD in Germany, do they signal that we are leaving a period of volatility behind us, which is typically traced to generational arguments about angry old white men who are, how can I say, diplomatically about to slip over the horizon? Or do they instead signal that we are entering into a new period of churn and change, a realignment of our political systems and our electorates? And that's a fairly simplistic way of viewing it. But the reason I frame it that way is it does get us into some of the arguments that we're now having from one day to the next about what's behind this. And I think There is a consensus, I would argue at least, there is a consensus in political science, in political sociology, that many of our party systems are now experiencing quite a profound structural shift away from the left-right divide that was primarily organised around questions of economic redistribution to a new divide between what you can loosely call sort of social liberals on the one hand side and social conservatives and perhaps authoritarians on the other and that that structural shift is really anchored in a very sharp educational divide that's pulling graduates and non-graduates further away from each other on these new divisive value-based issues like migration european integration perhaps also climate change and also increasingly i think the role of islam within western liberal society and so If you buy that argument, Henry, that actually we're talking about these deep rooted structural shifts as our populations evolve, as they become more highly educated, as the the structure of our occupations and and economies also shift alongside them, then, of course, these movements aren't going to go anywhere because they become the refuge for not just one type of voter, several types of voter who feel the pace and the scale of change is a fundamental threat, not just to them, this is not a movement rooted in in self-interest, but rather to their wider group and to their way of life. And that's what gives national populism this potency, because it's speaking to voters on two flanks. 
On the one side, it's taking the left's language around economic protectionism. You know, Marine Le Pen, for example, would have much in common with Jeremy Corbyn when talking about big business, talking about bankers' bonuses, talking about the, the problems of economic globalization. But they're also taking these themes of cultural protectionism and giving them a much more accessible, legitimate framing. One of the legacies of the, the Nouvelle Droit in the, in the 1980s and the, and the new right thinkers in, in Italy, Germany and, and elsewhere is that they effectively gave populists a much more resonant language of ethno-pluralism through which they can present these arguments. And now we're seeing things, I think, including in the last year, that we just haven't seen before in the electorates of these parties. I'll give you one example. We had a nice study two weeks ago that suggested LGBT communities are now providing significant support to national populist parties. Around about 20% of Marine Le Pen's electorate is estimated to come from LGBT communities, which goes to show how, you know, contrary to the argument that these are exclusively white, inherently uh, socially conservative electorates, that actually the the electorates are evolving and becoming a lot more nuanced than, than our public debate would have us believe, where these voters like the one in three black and ethnic minority voters that supported Brexit or the one in three Hispanic Latino voters who opted for Trump, that these movements are also able to draw in groups that we don't usually associate with their electorates, but who share this broader socially conservative worldview that actually you know, the bullet train of globalization is going too quickly and they don't share what you might call the double liberalism, social and economic, that has dominated much of our debate since the 1990s. I think the political movements that we've seen over the last year, of course, I would argue this, but have validated our, our analysis. If you look, for example, at the events in the UK, Brexit voters have not changed their minds. If anything, they've become more determined to see that project through. We've seen some significant political movements in Germany and Italy, now Portugal and Spain, which of course were also democracies that were once considered immune to national populism alongside Sweden, Germany and the UK. But if you step back and you look at the longer term evolution of these political systems, I mean, if we'd had this conversation even 10 years ago and forecast the changes that we've seen in some of these democracies, I don't think we would have believed some of those things, the breakthrough of the AFD, Sweden Democrats, the events in Italy. Maybe we would have believed the events in Italy, given the historic rate of volatility, maybe not Donald Trump. But if we take that big, broader view, then I think actually what we're seeing is, is a movement that began in the late 70s, early 1980s, that this, at least this move of national populism did, this movement. We're seeing it now really gradually come to its maturity and really present a more formidable challenge to the mainstream, and in particular, socially, culturally liberal mainstream politicians than it did in earlier decades. So as we finish in the book, I think there are two effects that this national populist moment is going to have. One is direct in terms of these movements entering office and trying to pass policy, where they've typically been less successful, but more importantly is the indirect effect of national populism, driving mainstream parties to adopt more restrictive positions on migration, on social integration, and on that cultural axis. And if you look at the Danish centre-left, if you look at the Austrian centre-right, if you look at the British centre-right, if you look at the, the broader movements of mainstream politics in Europe, with a few exceptions, it is incredibly hard 
to argue against that point that national populism is now having powerful indirect effects on political systems across the West. Your comment on the LGBT reminded me of one of the early national populists, Pim Fortuyn in the Netherlands, when he briefly headed the list Pim Fortuyn in the early 2000s. And he was an open homosexual, but yet gained massive support among working class voters, particularly in Rotterdam and so forth, over concern about Islamic migration. One of the things that I've noticed is, to get to your question about culture, is how both important it is, but how difficult it is to pin down what that means. I was looking at the exit poll in Bavaria last year. 100% of the AfD voters agreed with the statement that they regret that the influence of German culture is fading on a daily basis. And if you lined up the German parties based on social conservatism to openness, AfD down to the Greens, it was a perfect predictor that the more you got to the modern urban-based parties, the less agreed with that. Can you put a finger on what a national populist would say the way of life that is being lost is? Understanding that in each country there will be specific differences, that the Hungarian way of life because of the specific ethnic background and history of the Hungarians will be different from the German way of life. But is there a broad current of agreement over what it is that's being lost that can help us inform the cultural aspect of national populism? So I think the first thing to say is to me this is absolutely where the debate has to be. So firstly, thanks for asking the great question, because even still, you know, if you suggest or you believe, as I do, that cultural insecurity matters more to explaining political behavior than economic insecurity, right, which is the key point here. Cultural insecurity is much more important at explaining the appeal of these new populist movements and economic insecurity. Then you get into a much more interesting debate. We now know that economic hardship is a stronger predictor of support for the left, but perceptions of cultural threat, as you just alluded to in Germany, the, no the notion that one's national culture, one's national set of values, one's, na one's cultural reference points are being eroded is a really potent driver of support for national populism. And this by the way, is why many movements on the left have struggled in the face of national populism. Social Democrats across Europe have had a terrible 10 years are now really facing a, an existential struggle because in my view, another important new feature of our politics is that it's easier for the right to move left on economics than the left to move right on culture. And that is what has allowed national populism and strongly conservative politicians like Sebastian Kurz in Austria, and now perhaps Boris Johnson in the UK, to really exploit the inherent weaknesses within left-wing movements, which are simply unable to talk to voters about this notion, this sense of cultural insecurity, which they too often just say, actually, this is equivalent to racism, this is equivalent to xenophobia. I think when you try and break down that sense of you know, what are we talking about when we say cultural insecurity, I think the first thing that we're talking about, perhaps a useful framework, is to say, well, we're not talking about a debate between open versus closed. And I think the initial knee-jerk reaction to, to this political turbulence was to say, well, this is about, this is ultimately just about globalization. It's about people that want 
a closed world and people that want an open world. I think that's incredibly misleading. But but it is, I think, more useful to think of this as a debate between people who are comfortable with fast change and people who would prefer slow change. And as we know from a lot of the research since 2016 in the US and the UK, one of the key drivers of national populism, particularly at the local level, was rapid demographic change in areas that historically had been predominantly white and had over time had little diversity, but then suddenly received or experienced an injection of social and demographic change. And I think that now in my view, at least beyond dispute in the evidence base, but it gets us into this notion, this idea of well, what are people particularly concerned about? And I think there's a sense, a strongly aligned parallel sense that there are issues now on which, which people are not able to discuss and vocalise, which gives national populism another shot in the arm, that if you look at a lot of the work that's being done at the moment around political correctness or around what what are often called restrictive communication norms, this idea that people are not feel that they they cannot vocalise their concerns about uh, how their societies are changing, that's another shot in the arm for national populists. And also, I think it's about a sense that it's not that people necessarily are wanting a sort of return to the 1950s, but they're wanting a sense that there are cohesive, inclusive communities that share a kind of core skeleton of values to which people are willing to basically subscribe. And you know, my colleague Eric Kaufman's done a lot of work on this, making the point that you know what we're not looking for is a cultural straitjacket that everybody must wear. And for example, in Britain, they must constantly you know carry a pint of beer and a wave a union jack flag and go and watch the cricket every weekend there is a menu of cultural references and there must be a sort of core number of cultural reference points you know whether it's sort of speaking the language whether it's you know subscribing to key elements of that society that are shared by all people and and provide that basis that we need if we're going to promote social and intergroup trust and support welfare systems and all of those kinds of things. And I think you're absolutely right to raise a question of, well, if we accept that economic insecurity is not the dominant driver for these movements, then the question becomes how can governments, authorities, policymakers, and others move the debate on to get into the much more intriguing question about, well, what are those core cultural reference points and how could we perhaps compromise on some of them? Your comment that it is easier for the right to move left on economics than for the left to move right on culture is an interesting opening, particularly in some of the ways that you describe in the book, religion and race and some of the quiet, unstated, understated convictions that people often bring to the ballot box. Obviously, your description about how the UK voted to, in some sense, personally lose 4,300 pounds as part of the vote and were willing to do it anyway meant a, a loss of economics. But I wonder if you might comment on the religious angle in, in particular. You guys listed in the book, you know, Orban's language about uh, you know, refugees being a, a Muslim invasion force. Uh, Marine Le Pen similarly talking about Islam 
this most recent election, Stracker in, in Austria, that not ending Islamization, will bring Europeans to an abrupt end. Kurt Filters in the Netherlands, Salvini in Italy, talking about centuries of history at risk of disappearing if Islamization gains the upper hand. What do you make of sort of stoking the cultural, religious fears around religion? Is there a religious current in the in the most recent round of elections that you, that you see on immigration? I think to some extent there is. Again, I mean, if we step back and look at the broader trends that are sweeping through Europe. Europe is aging overall. Obviously, there are some exceptions to that. It's not particularly dynamic. And if you look at large parts of Central and Eastern Europe that tend to be a little bit more religious, they're also forecast to shrink and depopulate by quite a way, actually, come 2050 or 2100. So a lot of these countries inevitably, unless they find a way of increasing their populations will have to experience a further migration in order to sustain their economies and, and welfare state and so on. But many of those countries are hostile to Islam were and, and sort of view themselves as, I think, particularly that, for example, the Hungarians would argue that they accepted being in the European Union would would require them to open up their markets and embrace economic liberalism, but perhaps they underestimated the extent to which they would be asked to embrace social liberalism. And that tension point, I think, has bubbled under the surface. And the Islam issue, I think, contains the seeds to really grow into something that actually that is actually quite significant for Europe. If you look at the Pew Research Centre work on population forecasts in Europe over the next 50 years, or at least to get us, sorry, to 2050, then much of Western Europe in particular is going to experience some pretty significant demographic changes that I think will inevitably resurrect the debate around religion and also the capacity, the willingness, the ability of Islam to accommodate and integrate into modern liberal Western societies. I'll give you one example. At the moment in the UK, we have an interesting debate involving predominantly Muslim families protesting about the national requirement that their children are taught about LGBT communities and same-sex rights in the town of Birmingham in the Midlands, which is an ethnically diverse, culturally diverse city. That is a microcosm of the debates that I think will continue to emerge and gather steam across Europe as this broader civilizational replacement theory of national populism goes increasingly mainstream. It was revealing uh, recently that the Austrian Freedom Party leader, Christian Stracker, had come out and said that he would now accept and embrace what is called the great replacement theory, the idea essentially that in native indigenous uh, white Europeans, whatever your preferred terminology, uh, are gradually being replaced by immigrants, minorities um, and, and settled or uh, arriving Muslims. And, you know, this this used to be in the 80s and 90s, of course, I mean, this is a long history and we don't have time to go into it. But but the Eurabia thesis used to be pretty fringe. I mean, it used to be out on the, the edges of the populist right. It's now fully mainstream and to the point where it's also being endorsed by a large number of non-populist actors, newspaper columnists in Europe, prominent authors in France, Germany, the UK. We've had some of the top selling books of the last two years have been versions of that thesis. Uh, and so I think it's sort of worrying to say on one level that it's inevitable that this debate is going to become more and more prominent 
but it's also i think inevitable that we're going to therefore have to ask the more important question about well what do you do about these perceived value conflicts and one model could be what denmark is doing denmark is saying okay we're going to have this debate but we're going to have a very interventionist hands-on state that is going to have reduced levels of migration but is going to invest massively in integration programs to try and cement and encourage and cultivate a more integrated cohesive society so you know mixing children not allowing segregated schooling not allowing segregated housing blocks removing welfare as an incentive and so on for people to mix and integrate i ask openly is that a model that we will see played out across europe or will the more relaxed socially economically laissez faire approaches to integration win the day i don't know but i think that that's the debate that we're going to have over the next 10 to 20 years without question given the longer term demographic trends one of the things matthew that is we hear so often from the liberal and for an american audience liberal doesn't necessarily mean left wing in europe it refers to people who would be called libertarian or free marketeers here but the liberal critique of national populism is that it's inherently closed it's inherently bigoted and it's inherently anti-democratic that you hear that being levied against people like netanyahu and israel now that he's allying with the more nationalist populist elements in Israeli politics it's of course levied against Orban in Hungary and uh, Kaczynski and PIS in Poland and Donald Trump and uh, of course against Boris Johnson when he was proroguing parliament do you fear for democracy in this age of tumult or do you think that there are uh, one that the critique of national populism is inherently undemocratic or anti-democratic is wrong and if so how do you see us being able to navigate this in a way to strengthen the core of our democratic government as opposed to devolving into a modern version of the Spanish civil war well i think there are always reasons to be very suspicious of populism and to expect the darker sides of populism to expect these movements to always be pulled towards their darker side but let me just clarify what i think is going on i think firstly we do not have a problem in terms of public support for democracy and we've had a pretty vigorous debate since 2016 particularly in the US you had some work suggesting that young people and others were giving up on democracy i just don't find any of that credible I think if you look at every major gold standard academic survey that we have, we have very strong and robust and established levels of support for living in a democracy, for key aspects of democratic life. Large numbers of people say they want to live in a representative democracy and they value that. So I don't think the battle is between democracy and anti-democracy. I think the battle clearly is between two competing conceptions of democracy, the traditional liberal conception that prioritizes individual rights and i think some people would argue has now failed to satisfy that struggle for recognition that it was initially hailed for achieving has become too individualistic as well at the same time but that liberal conception of democracy is now really having to defend itself against a direct conception of democracy that is wanting to prioritize majority will especially against minorities on sensitive issues like migration policy borders and so on 
And national populists are really advocating the latter and many what you might call moderate mainstream politicians advocating the former. And I think that battle over the conception of democracy is going to really rage. And what frustrates me about the debate is that there's very little nuance in the sense that there are lots of people within the national populist electorates that could be brought back to the mainstream. I'm completely believe that. I mean, there are lots of voters that intuitively, instinctively know that national populists do not have the answers, but they're voting for them largely to send a message. But we're not going to bring those voters back into the mainstream if we're also simultaneously saying that they're equivalent to Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, or if we're saying, you know, as some of the US media was saying, that Boris Johnson is somehow comparable to Europe's interwar dictators. I think, you know, there is a a legitimate question, I think, to ask about you know, to what extent are people actually losing touch with reality, that we've got this tendency that Jonathan Haidt and others have talked about to catastrophize uh, about political change. And that has become especially prominent since 2016. I think there are lots of good things that are happening in advanced democracies. Racial prejudice is consistently declining. Support for same-sex rights is consistently increasing. And as I say, the foundational pillars of democracy, I think, look strong and entrenched. But those people who are abandoning the mainstream are doing so because they feel partly that they have been excluded from the conversation, from the national conversation. And so I think as a consequence, the way back is not to say they are anti-democrats, they are illiberal fascists, they are bigots, and some of them certainly are, but I would argue not the majority. The way to win them back, I think, is to actually revisit the discussion about can we radicalize democracy? Can we create new and interesting and innovative forums through which everybody in the, the social contract can, can participate, working class voters, non-graduates, social conservatives, all of whom feel that social liberalism has become the dominant strand and a strand that has little interest in viewing the views and the aspirations and the opinions of others as legitimate. That has rumbled beneath the Brexit debate. It's rumbled beneath the Trump debate. It's rumbled beneath the debates in France and Germany. And there is a lot of uncomfortable evidence, I think, that is out there now, both in the US and Europe, that suggests that illiberal liberals are a problem in this debate because there is a view that those with other opinions, with other values, either you don't want to have them in your social networks or you don't value their judgment or you are more intolerant toward them simply because of political bias. And that this is going to be deeply problematic going forwards, because if we're going to get to this sort of space for compromise, we're going to have to require both sides to make some concessions. Those concessions are going to relate to reconfiguring our democratic systems. It's going to relate to reforming our migration systems. It's going to involve diversifying our media and it's going to involve ensuring that we have bridges that bring different sides of the debate together and we actively disincentivize, you know, one way traffic out of the national conversation. Yes. And we're truly grateful for how the argument and the book 
opens that other side of populism, not merely the darker side that many elites are disconnected or fearful of, but also the legitimate instinct toward first things first and the nation and the culture. You included in your book this sort of ominous warning from this pair of Harvard sociologists, political scientists, Steve Levitsky and Dan Litzkap, this idea that there has never been a transition successful in history when a majority ethnic group becomes a minority and sort of a caution there. And while you're a political science professor, do you have thoughts as you look across the wave of elections that you're studying here about any promising examples there where pluralism that is normative, a pluralism that is complementary opens rather than causes clash and conflict? One of the points that we try and make is that wherever you've had significant demographic change, usually that has been followed in some form or other by a negative reaction among voters, by a backlash. And if you go through history, going through much of the 20th century into where we are now, you can see how that has really found its expression. What makes me anxious today is that if you simply look at where we're going to go kind of over the next 25 to 50 years in North America and Europe, a lot of the debates that we're beginning to have around identity politics, value change, you know, the ongoing effects of globalization, those debates really have only only just begun. They're going to intensify, I think, considerably. And so when we're looking for successful cases, you're really looking at, at the outliers um, because the basic story has been amid rising ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, rapid change. Many of our political systems have just fragmented, particularly in Europe. And you've either had social liberals abandoning the mainstream for more radical options, or you've had social conservatives moving over to populists. And so even if you look to the country like Canada, for example, where I think Canadian politics is now beginning to change in interesting ways as well, it's difficult to pinpoint with some accuracy a best case model. I think the jury's out. I think you're going to have a lot of interesting conversations about that exact topic. I think looking at some of the work that's now coming through I mentioned Eric's work, which I'm a big fan of, and David Goodhart's work, I'm also a big fan of, and the people who are really now pushing this argument that we have to accept, uh, I think the evidence is overwhelming, that demographic change really is sitting in the driving seat for a lot of this stuff, and economic hardship and insecurity, while still incredibly important, is sitting alongside in the passenger seat, but is not the primary driver. To me, that is... If we can just get that basic binding established and we can shift the conversation, then I think we'll get into a much more interesting place. Well, Matthew, fascinating as ever. I wish we had another two hours or more to go on and chatting with you, but we really appreciate your joining us on this and look forward to continuing the conversation and to continuing to read your work. Thank you for having me. Faith Angle exists to open connections between leading journalists, scholars, and clerics. Thanks for listening. <laughs>